The views and opinions expressed by the guests on this podcast are that of their own. In no way, shape, or form do they reflect the official policy or position of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. This episode of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack was brought to you by Pressure Junkies. Wetsuits for a diver, designed by divers. Check them out at PressureJunkies.com. Descended into the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack, the commercial diving podcast by working divers for divers. Episode number eight, Dive Lab with Mike Ward. In this episode, we speak with Commercial Diving Hall of Famer Mike Ward. We speak about the vision and inception of Dive Lab, his career with the Navy Experimental Diving Unit, and diving equipment and technology. Dive Lab is a state-of-the-art test facility for testing surface-supplied diving helmets, full face masks, and associated life support equipment for Kirby Morgan diving systems. Dive Lab's goal is the steady improvement of diving equipment and safety for all facets of diving. For more information, visit divelab.com. Make sure you guys like and follow all of our uh, social media pages, our Instagram, Facebook, and uh, you can find more information and stay up to date at thebottomdwellers.com. Again, that's thebottomdwellers.com. And don't forget about our dive line, the uh, diver's grab bag. Phone number is 562-999-2330. So turn up those comms, stand by, we're going to make it hot. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. I'm your host, uh, Armando, also known as LB Diver. We got uh, Kenny. How's it going, y'all? How you guys and, doing? Uh, we have Mike Ward of Dive Lab. How you doing, Mike? Good. So I'm really grateful to have you on. Um, you're definitely somebody that I really, really wanted to talk to because uh, it, it's pretty cool to see some of the pictures that you post. You, you, you're pretty open about what you, what you guys do there, huh, Mike? Yeah, we... Um... Well, there's no reason. We, we like to let people know, give them a preview of what's coming down the road and maybe what changes are coming. But so for the most part, we're pretty open. Any of the really secret stuff, we just keep hidden. You know, we just don't know. <laughs> now you do have secret stuff, you know, um, uh, you, we, you guys do work for the government every so often, right? Yeah, but we don't, we don't, we just, they ask us to make something. We don't ask them why we just make it and then we move on. Now, what's some but, of the cooler uh, stuff that's, uh, that's gone through there that you can talk about? Well, we get a lot of cool things. I mean, we sometimes the, the most insignificant things can turn out to be pretty cool. Um, every once in a while, we get to look. Well, we do a lot of testing for some of the other companies out there, so we we kind of have an idea where all that's going. But uh, every once in a while, you stumble onto something that's kind of interesting that leads into other things. Right now, we're we're trying to finish up the Kirby Morgan return line system. Uh, we're doing all the European CE type approval testing. And that's been, we've been working on that since September. We've actually been working on that helmet for eight years. It's been a really slow process. It's just kind of like whenever we had time and then your past two years, we, we picked it up and and trying to finish the whole thing, but it takes a lot to bring a new item like that to market because you got to cover all the testing um, where you have all your development. And as you're developing, 
you'll find things that you either missed or or you find a better way to do it. So you try to implement those. So sometimes you have to back up from all the work you've done and kind of unravel it and uh, plug in the new stuff. So, uh, well, we're getting there. We're almost there now. And I bet it's kind of hard to keep up with all the legislation and stuff, you know, because I mean, standards can change every so often. And then uh, there was something going on with the CO2. Uh, You had published some reports uh, earlier this year about a CO2. Is, Is that something that the European agencies are giving you trouble with? Well, the the problem with the Europe, you know, the European CE requirements. Um, the problem is like any other kind of legislation; they come up with a standard or a requirement, and sometimes they pull those standards from other standards that already exist that don't really apply to what we as divers are doing. Or if they do apply, they don't apply in the same manner. But it's a lot easier to grab something that's already out there and plug it in, and typically. You know, that's what the, and unfortunately what it does, it it hurts the industry because they make the manufacturers comply. And a lot of times it can actually turn out to either be more detrimental or more dangerous because you're applying something that doesn't really pertain. The CO2 is a good example that they, uh, they apply standards on the CO2 are a little bit different with diving than they are with surface equipment. Uh, but they had those standards, so that's what they use. Uh, another really good example is the noise. They applied the noise standards, and all they did was they took the standard occupational noise standards that are used for everyday OSHA and health and safety, and they applied them to diving. And there's absolutely no similarity. In other words, in the water, it's totally different than on the surface as far as how sound is attenuated. And, uh, well, breathing sound alone, when you finally, you breathe on the surface, you come up with one sound level, you get down 33 feet, you're, you're now moving twice as many molecules through the helmet as you were on the surface. So everything changes, mm-hmm. but yet we're still using the same equipment on the sur- uh, at depth to monitor the sound that we use on the surface, which not, was never intended. So that's just one of many, there's many examples like that with the standard that they need to evolve with the standards and change. As I was doing some of the research on, uh, on your studies on CO2, um, I read all, all the stuff that you had there on the, the uh, Dive Lab website. And like I said, it was real well thought out. Um, is, is this certain areas that you kind of just taught yourself or do you have a background in, in, in uh, you know, physics and engineering and, and all that? No, no, I was a knuckle dragon diver. I was a, a Navy deep sea diver for years. And I did three tours at the experimental diving unit over a 20 year period. And I retired out of there. So I worked unmanned testing as well as man testing um, at the experimental diving unit. But the CO2 is something that it's kind of almost like a black art. It's real basic and simple, but yet people get all wrapped around the axle. They don't understand the least amount of CO2, the the less CO2 you can have, the better off we're all going to be when it comes to diving. But unfortunately, the Europeans, they don't really look at things the same way. Really good example. Their limit um, in Europe, the U.S. Navy limits 2% surface equivalent, regardless of depth and regardless of of, uh, respiration rate. Whereas the Europeans, 
once you go above a work rate of 40, 40 RMV and above, they cut it down to 1%. Well, that's virtually impossible to actually have helmets and everything that, that truly pass that without, without having to put a lot of extra thought into it and, and explain to the divers, have them do certain things. And that's why you'll see it in the Kirby Morgan manual. We stress real carefully about when a diver's at rest, crack on the steady flow, get a little bit of gas going. Or when you're working really hard, stop every two, two minutes and just take a really short vent, five second vent, you know, little things like that. But if you don't do that stuff, you can you can run into problems with with any kind of equipment. Right. And then that also brings me to another uh, uh, another point, just to clarify for anyone listening. Uh, Dive Lab, uh, it originally started as a KM DSI, right? Kirby Morgan or D- Dive Lab is actually owned by Connie Morgan. Okay. Connie Morgan owns Kirby Morgan, but basically yeah. it started, uh, I started working for Bev Morgan, uh, 20 some odd years ago. And, uh, Bev wanted to have a test facility and, uh, well, I'm here in Panama city and, and I didn't want to leave Panama city. So he said, well, we'll start a test facility in Panama city. So it kind of basically started in my garage and he bought a house down the street. We turned one of the bedrooms into an office and then he started spending a lot of time down here. And then two or three years later, we ended up buying a building and we started assembling a, a little test facility and then it kind of grew and grew. So now we, uh, we've got a pretty, pretty large facility, we've got a machine shop, fiberglass shop, um, all the offices. We've got our, we, of course, we do a lot of training. Uh, we train commercial divers from all over the world on uh, technician training and we even do some specialty diving type training. And then, of course, the testing. We do a lot of testing. So it just kind of grew. And before you know it, you know, it got pretty big. So all the new products that come from Kirby Morgan gets tested there? I mean, you you pretty much have your hands on everything that's made for our hats. Exactly. I mean, whenever we do a lot of co-development with Kirby Morgan, Kirby Morgan, usually Pete Ryan will start a project or Trent Schultz out there. They may start a small project and then we send things back and forth. And then uh, they have a, a, a test facility out at Kirby Morgan as well. It's not, not quite as big as what we've got. They, there's certain things they can't do, but um, they're able to do quite a bit. So they'll get the ball started. They'll send it to us. We'll play with it. We'll go back and forth. We'll send it back to them. And, and we, we do joint developmental testing. And then when, it's, when, it's, when we figure it's complete and we've actually sent some out in the field uh, for evaluation. And when we're ready, then, then we do all the final testing here and try to close the door on it. And then it usually goes across the street to the Navy because they're usually interested. So it's a, it's a long process. Yeah. I always wondered why you guys were in Panama city. <laughs> why, why are you guys a country apart? Well, because like I said, the, um, the Navy experimental diving unit here is Navy dive schools here. I oh, did yeah. three tours over a 20 year period on and off out of Panama City. So when it finally came time and I decided to retire from the Navy, I wasn't going to leave. I wanted to stay here. I was here. Bev offered me the job, and it worked out good. We actually started off as Kirby Morgan, Florida. and uh, But that didn't work real good because you end up with California wanting to run and control everything, but they're not here, so it didn't work. So we separated companies. Uh, but it's still, it's... I tell everybody, don't think that, uh, you know, Kirby Morgan, we're here for Kirby Morgan. That's our main purpose. 
but we do work for other companies as well. So how did you meet uh, Bev Morgan? Uh, when I was in the Navy, he came to EDU. Uh, Bev kind of had a love-hate relationship with the Navy. He was he loved to work with them, but he hated it when things didn't go right. You know, the people didn't really understand a lot of what he was bringing forward. It takes Navy's really, really slow when it comes to adopting new techniques and new equipment. So, um, but he'd worked with the Navy all the way back to Sea Lab days. Uh, a lot of what the Navy got, they got, it wasn't Kirby Morgan at the time. It was, uh, you know, basically Bev Morgan and, and Bob Kirby and Deepwater Development and whatever. So, but he was in on Sea Lab and uh, he did a lot with Sea Lab and he was in on the early saturation dives up in Buffalo. And of course, the Alaskan oil field diving and oh, the very first sat dive. So, um, yeah, I met him though. He came to EDU right after the Navy got the super light, which the Navy called the Mark 21. And, uh, and I was, uh, I was running unmanned. I was actually running the fleet dive locker at EDU and all that equipment fell under me and they had a few issues in the Navy. So, uh, we, I got a hold of Bev and we talked about it. He flew out and I was showing him and, uh, and of course he knew all about it. It was just the Navy always thought they had a better way of doing things. So they made some modifications to the super light, it, which really screwed it up. And uh, anyway, we got back and kind of resolved all that. And that's how I got to meet him. And then shortly after I retired, I went to work for General Dynamics, which was analysis and technology at the time, local contracting company here that had a support contract with the Navy. And I was doing some of the same things I did when I was on active duty. And so Bev came to me and said, hey, why don't you why don't you leave and come work for me? Well, I, I kind of worked for Kirby Morgan for two and a half, three years before I finally realized working two jobs wasn't fun. So I gave up the other job and went to work for Bev full time. Well, I'm glad that worked out. Um, and you're doing right now what I'm sure you'd rather be doing instead of being like a liaison. Cause that's what he initially had you as first. Yeah, at, yeah, at first I, right? I, well, I was directly working with the Navy on a lot of projects and, but yeah, he, uh, it, originally it was a liaison and then, but he was really interested in, in being able to develop, have a breathing machine. It's what he, he actually had a breathing machine in California, but nobody knew how to operate it. So the very first thing he did was he had it shipped out here and we set it up in my garage Unfortunately, we didn't have chambers or anything, so we could only do surface testing. But we are breathing machine looks pretty cool. It looks like a whole blow up doll gallery. What you got with different size heads and and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Um. So that breathing machine, did you guys develop that? Is 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 that your proprietary? No, actually, that's we have an Anstey, a special Anstey machine, um, that's developed by. Uh, well, there was actually three three partners over in the UK, uh, Stan, Al, and uh, let's see, how did it go? Stan, Ian, Stan, and Al. And Al bailed out right in the beginning. So the, the name Anstey came from the three owners. And Ian Hemmings was, uh, he worked for the Ministry of Defense, he, he, their experimental diving unit. And he kind of didn't agree with the way things were going. And he decided he was going to build breathing machines. So he came up with a state-of-the-art system. This is right when computers exploded and everything was able to be done on a computer where you could really take accurate readings. So uh, we actually bought a number of two, two major systems 
from ANSTE. And they built our current system, which you see pictures on our website. We got it quite a bit. So we can test down to 660 feet. We can totally control the water temperature from as low as 28 degrees all the way up to 120 degrees. And uh, we can do sound and CO2 and all that. But uh, we've modified the system quite a bit, the, the bolt-on parts of the system. We've got, we can run a whole bunch of different gases. We've got all kinds of umbilical setups upstairs to where we can just switch. So we've got it set up to where we can make things happen pretty fast. So it's speed and yeah. I'm sure it's safer. Now, when you were with the NEDU, you were the breathing machine, right? No, actually, NEDU's got, they've got, their systems are a little different. They use very large man-type chambers. And then they have a basically a, a small tank in the chamber. And they put all the equipment in there, rig it all up, close the door, and then they got to pressurize the whole chamber to depth. And I don't know. I can actually show you on mine here a little bit. It's a little different. Another area where, you know, we kind of fantasize about and don't really know too much about the NEDU, you know, like, um, I mean, we, we always look back at the pictures of them sending goats into chambers and seeing what happens to them, you know? Yeah. Well, that's quite a bit different now. They don't, they don't do the animals anymore, but, but the big thing about the EDU chambers is it's very large scale and what takes them um, a whole day to do, we can usually do in an hour, you know, dependent because the system is so much smaller. So this chamber is like 48 inch, 52 inch diameter. Uh, it's about four feet deep. It's full water. We can control the temperature and, uh, and everything that goes in there. We got cameras. We can actually, uh, rotate the mannequin. We can put a whole mannequin in there or just the helmet. Like in this case here, it's just a helmet in there. And it's just laying on the grid because what I'm measuring right now is strictly working on the return line parts of it. And we can adjust the dial of breath. We got servo motors that we can use and we can interface all kinds of other things. But, but basically the, the general setup is made to where we can, we can make a lot of changes really fast. So, um, but like I said, the Navy, the Navy's got great capability. It's just, their system is so large and the bureaucracy is so large, it takes a long time to, to actually do things. The prototype return line setup we're doing right now, if you can see that, I can't really see what I'm doing here. Yeah, but, you can see. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That's a two-diver system. It'll be, in a, it'll be in a frame. So the nice thing about that is you can have a person on the bottom breathing. And you look at the flow meters and you adjust everything with the back pressure. And you can actually, you can actually determine what his work rate is, what his breathing rate is, which is kind of neat because there isn't anything out there right now that'll do that. And that's all part of the system we're working on. So that's, um, that's pretty neat. So, I mean, like you're still constantly innovating and making things new and better. So all the safety alerts and bulletins, are those coming, coming out of your office there, Mike? No, no. Kirby Morgan, they, they pretty much do all that. We get a lot of okay. calls. If somebody calls, they have a concern or they have a problem with something, or maybe they have a, a broken, whatever, you know, they'll, we always have them get a hold of Kirby Morgan, but we forward that on. And then okay. if there is going to be normally, if there's a, a bulletin on equipment or a safety bulletin or anything, it changes. It normally comes through us first. Um, before it goes out normally every once in a while that won't happen 
but um, they'll they'll run the bulletin by us to you know, or if it's something really important, sometimes it gets generated here, goes out to them, and then they put it out. But it pretty much all comes out of there. Okay, yeah, I I know I did call you. I think I called you last year and uh, asked you about my 17B shell. You know, because at at one point there was a bulletin out saying that you know and anything 25 years or older, you know, that you might want to think about condemning it. I forget the exact wording. Well, know, actually, I, I, came out I, with. I don't, I don't go that far. It's just Kirby Morgan, you know, for many, many years, there was pretty much just the 17 B. And when I first started working, that was the predominant helmet. There was some 27s out there, but they were mostly 17s. And when they came out with the, the 17K, which is the 37, with the new bottom end. It had the same bottom end as the 27. That was so much better all the way around as far as maintenance went. And um, I started pushing everybody in that direction. But no, if, if the fiberglass shell could last, it could last indefinitely, long as it's taken care of. My 17B is, is 30 some odd years old, but it never gets dove anymore. I won't dive it. I'll dive it. 27 is my favorite, you know, from my small head. Um, but uh, no, there's really no age as long as they're taken care of and they're inspected regularly. Yeah. That's good I to know. I push everybody into the, into the stainless helmets now because it's a lot easier to maintain and a lot easier on your pocketbook year to year. That's and true. You don't got to worry about inserts. Those are... You know, don't have to worry about it. Don't worry about that. And and we that that can happen. I mean, we do have people strip things out, but there's generally always a fix for it. So far, we haven't been able to not fix anything that's gone wrong, and it's usually a lot easier. So um, there's going to be new things coming out for the for the stainless helmet down the road. Everything is going in that direction, so it'll actually be easier. I think everybody would love a stainless twenty seven. Oh yeah. Well, maybe one day, you know, maybe one day, uh, they're still talking about it. Once this diamond is done, who knows, maybe it'll free up some time, but, uh, yeah, maybe a big square port 27 would be nice. Oh yeah. Problem with the 27 is it doesn't fit everybody, but those that it does fit, they love it. I don't know. We have a guy on our, on our team that has a pretty big head and, uh, He gets his head in there pretty easy. He pretty good. I'm not gonna name any names. <laughs> well, I got a call from the school yesterday, and they wanted to know if there was anything they can do. They had a guy that couldn't get his. They said his head was so big, he couldn't wear any of the helmets and be comfortable. Not even a 37. Nope. And uh, I told him, I said, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe he funny. needs to go back and get him a Mark 12 or a Mark 5 or. Adesco, right? Maybe you should go to. Yeah, yeah, there's school. there's still a couple guys here in the port of a uh, port of LA, port of Long Beach that I know that are diving Yokohamas, which is pretty cool to see. You know, uh, yeah, it's cool to see, but I don't miss that at all. But they um, swear by it being faster. They're like, well, I can do anything as fast as you and your Kirby Morgans, you know. And I don't know, I just don't see it. Yeah, I don't either. Um, it's come a long way. There's a big difference between being able to turn your head without having to turn your whole body. You know, and, and not have your shoulders bleeding at the end of the day or your feet all cramped up, you know. No, the, it's better. The gear is better now than it's ever been. Um, you do other stuff 
to certify other people's hats. So I'm sure you've seen quite a bit of hats roll through Dive Lab, right? We have lots of hats. We've probably got we've probably got 40 helmets here right now in for wow. repair. We've probably got well, we had five came in from South Africa yesterday, just shells for fiberglass repair. And it's crazy because there's only one person doing the fiberglass repair, and that's my son Mike. He won't let anybody else do it. And he's also our machinist. So I'm fighting with him all the time. I need to get machine time, but he's got fiberglass to do. So yeah, it's uh and then we we generally put out three or four or five um annual overhauls on helmets a week at least. Um, sometimes more. And then uh, we have our own equipment that we build here to support the Army, the Coast Guard. And we've got uh, the XLDS system. It's on our website. It's a complete dive system, surface supply dive system. We've got about um, 60 systems out there so far. And uh, that's complete dive systems, umbilicals and everything. So we do a lot of the maintenance and an overhaul of that. They send them to us. And we'll have to overhaul it. We just finished a system this week that we've had here for three weeks. It was a two-diver system. Complete overhaul, everything. Harnesses, umbilicals, everything. So uh, we stay real, real busy. I think, Mike, that was so great about you guys. I, I remember calling a few years ago, and I was I bought my own hat. And I think it might have been you. Um, you guys talked me through, like, everything which torque wrenches to buy, which, you know, things to watch out for, even with all that stuff that you guys do. I mean, I think you were still on the phone with me for probably over half an hour talking to me about overall in my hat and you didn't make any single, make, make a dime off that. And yet you still took your time to help me out. Well, we're here. Like I said, we're here for Kirby Morgan. Part of our job, part of what they pay us to do is to act as a technical liaison. So People call out to Kirby Morgan and they answer a lot of the questions, but there's a lot of times people will call out there and they'll say, no, you got to call dive lab because it, it'll have to do with performance or, or the actual use of the equipment. We run all the training for Kirby Morgan. That's all done here. We train all the Kirby Morgan dealers here. So anything technical comes from dive lab. Uh, but no, that's what we're here for. We're here to make sure that the Kirby Morgan customers are able to maintain um, the equipment the way they need to maintain it. And that's why we push the training courses. You know, the, uh, the amount of people we train every year is quite a few Rocky, our head instructor, he's on the road, um, at least two weeks out of the month. Now this past year has been a little different, but generally speaking, he's gone about two weeks out of the month. And then we always do at least one class here every month. And then on top of that, we have specialty classes where we have, uh, like the Coast Guard will come for, or U.S. and Customs Border, they'll, they'll come for like two weeks straight. And they actually come for training, and then they, they actually use our facility, and they go out and they do training dives on their own here in Panama City. So, yeah, we stay real, real busy. But the main thing is being able to take care of the Kirby Morgan customers, make sure they're taken care of. And that's pretty cool. So, so you helped with kind of designing the courses and stuff like that, and and uh, you offer started. a bunch of courses there, right? We, I actually started it back in uh, two thousand. The very first course we did was uh, was actually for the EPA, EPA divers. They they just got into surface supply diving. Back then, it was just my son and I, and uh, 
So we, we, we started with the Kirby Morgan checklist. We designed all the Kirby Morgan checklists because when I, that, in the Navy, that's all we used was checklists. So I went to Bev and said, hey, we need to have checklists for the Kirby Morgan helmets. So we started the daily, the monthly, the annual overhaul. And originally we did checklists for every model. And then we looked at it and we went, wow, this is too much paper. So we combined them. So then it just kind of exploded overnight. Next thing I know, we were training the Army, the FBI, mostly started out with government. And then uh, then all of a sudden we had a lot of commercial divers coming because we started the technician course, a certified course so they could work on their own equipment. And then we had a lot of companies sending people. And then we went to the schools and we said, hey, how would you like to teach this operator user course? It's it's everything a diver should know about how to use Kirby Morgan helmet, but probably isn't being taught at dive school. So it was a standardized course of instruction. And then it just kind of exploded. So since that time, you know, we have dealers all over the world teaching the operator user course and doing technician courses. But just the operator user alone, we've probably certified over 10,000 people since we started. And Which that technician course is such a great course. Yeah. I mean, hats off to you for for designing the uh, technician course. Uh, I highly recommend every commercial diver to take the technician course. You know, given you could always send it to Dive Lab to Mike and have him work on your hat. But you know, I think if you're going to dive it, you better know how exactly. it works. Yeah, it's 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 a really good course. Rocky does a great job, and people can go on our website. You know, the powerpoints we we've got all kinds of information on there, and then just. The Kirby Morgan websites alone, they've they've got a tremendous amount of YouTube videos, how to change the hood on your KMB, um, how to just pretty much everything on there. And it, they're adding more and more all the time. And we're going to actually start doing some actual YouTube videos here pretty soon. That's something we haven't done. But we've got a gal running our website now that's really good. And um, anybody that's seen our website lately, it's it's changed quite a bit. It's gotten a lot better. So we keep putting more and more. So is that a bottom dwellers dive check exclusive? You're going to be doing YouTube videos for us? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's all time related that I won't be doing them, but, uh, I was talking to Rocky the other day and he's gonna, we're going to start doing a few YouTube, especially for this return line. We're going to need to. Awesome. So look out for dive lab, uh, YouTube videos coming soon. Heard it first here at the bottom dwellers dive shack. They'll probably be real shaky in the beginning. You know, we have to, we have to learn no. how to do that. So. You heard some of our earlier podcasts that were pretty shaky. Let's stop for a minute and talk about Pressure Junkies. Pressure Junkies makes some badass suits. Go to PressureJunkies.com. That's PressureJunkies with a Z.com. What's so different about these wetsuits? Well, they're not your typical scuba suits off the shelf, that's for sure. These suits, for one, are built for the working diver. Trevor Heinz. The brains behind Pressure Junkies is an active working diver for the past 20 years. So he knows what we want. And what we want is to not struggle into a wet-ass suit at oh dark 30 in the morning. So what did he do? Well, he put zippers on the cuffs and the ankles and most of his suits are front entry. What else could you want? Well, I'll tell you what you want. You want Kevlar on the elbows and the knees and pockets on the pant legs to store all those bolts and store all those little nuts that you're trying to uh, try to wiggle on. They're comfortable. They offer maximum protection, thermal protection, and style. And who doesn't want to look good while they're getting dirty? 
Pressure Junkies wetsuits are commercial diving suits for the working diver, and they're not going to break your bank. Suits are affordable, they last long, and they're just like us. They work hard. So go to PressureJunkies.com. That's PressureJunkies.com. All right. Back to the show. So just going back real quick, uh, um, your your background is is, is Navy. Do, do you have any uh, stories that you can share with us about working with uh, NEDU or anything from your uh, early days diving? Like how how much has it, I mean, it's obviously changed quite a bit, but you were there in the ground floor for quite a bit of, you know, changes in dive technology. I mean, you saw, you know, Bev Morgan revolutionize the industry. Yeah, well, my background's a little different. I I missed out on a lot of really good stuff. I, I started off as a, well, I started off regular Navy second-class diver on a submarine rescue ship out of New London, Connecticut, the Sunbird, which you don't get to do a whole lot of diving when you're on an ASR. Um, and, and it, but the diving we did get to do wasn't a lot of fun. So, uh, and then being a, you know, a recreational diver and a scuba diving instructor, uh, I got a lot of water time there, but then, Probably one of the biggest mistakes I made was I, I became a saturation diver, which there's uh, it sounds exciting, but you don't get a whole lot of dive in there either. And the dives you do get usually end up with bone necrosis or whatever else. So a lot different than uh, the regular fleet diver. So I was pretty much involved when I became a saturation diver. Well, I should say when I did my first tour at the experimental diving unit, I had to be willing to become a sat diver, go to sat school. And then once I did that, I was locked into that community. So most of my diving after that was the experimental diving. Um, I spent uh, five years out at submarine development group in California and doing projects out there. And then of course, three tours of duty at the experimental diving unit over a 20 year period. So I, I was there from this early late, let's see, 77 to to uh, 80 and then out in California till 85, five years out there. And then back to EDU for another three years. And then uh, USS Ortolan out of Charleston, South Carolina, another submarine rescue ship. And we worked mostly out of the Bahamas. So that was pretty good. But, uh, and then back to EDU again, another tour. And then I retired. So a lot of, well, a lot of what I did was equipment related. It was experimenting with equipment. And back in those days, we, we still made things. I was a hull technician, so I was a fabricator. And I worked both in unmanned testing and also ran the fabrication shop at EDU. So uh, got to do a lot of little, little things that you don't even think about, and then which just kind of fed right into what I'm doing today. So because we have a fairly large machine shop here and fiberglass shop, we do some plastic molding. We do everything but 3D printing. California does all that for us. But that's uh, that was the, probably the biggest thing in the in the military was the type of dive and the type of thing that I got into uh, was a little bit different than regular fleet diving where you just do a lot of diving. You're working on ships all the time. So that's a lot of fun, but it's no fun in the wintertime, especially if you don't have hot water. So did did you do like the submarine checkout dives and all that stuff ever so often? Oh yeah, yeah on, on scuba mostly, right? Yeah, security swims, that boring stuff, and you know some of the really good jobs. The Navy, the Navy used to do a lot more salvage. They don't do much of that anymore. 
But years ago, when I first started diving, there was still quite a bit of Navy salvage stuff going on. Not so much anymore. I still think it's pretty cool. I mean, you were there at the NEDU for for quite a while. And I can only imagine, you know, the cool stuff, uh, cool gear that you got your hands on, you know. Well, they and they still, you know, it, it's changed a little bit now. The Navy, their job primarily is is just to to make sure the equipment that the fleet's getting meets the Navy requirements. Whereas back earlier on when I was there, they would actually do development work. Now the base here does a lot of the development work, and we work a lot with the base. So we probably do more work with uh, the Naval support activity right here because they have a big underwater test facility and they test equipment as well. So we work real close with them back and forth. We share, we share a lot. And, uh, so it helps them. It helps us. Um, and then of course they're doing equipment, they're doing work for other companies as well. So sometimes that interferes. It doesn't, it's not right to bring me in there if, if they're working on somebody else's equipment. So, uh, but it's worked out well. So let's talk about other people's equipment. Every so often, you'll get a uh, dive hats from other manufacturers or somebody that's trying to manufacture their own hat, right? To come test the dive lab to get that stamp of approval. No, we don't. We don't usually do that because that that's no. a, a conflict with Kirby Morgan. Now, I test full face masks, even though Kirby Morgan makes full face masks. We've still tested them for the other companies like OTS. Uh, we do a lot of testing for them because they don't have the facility to do what needs to be done, like CO two. We actually did the CE testing for them. Uh, but they're not in conflict with us. They're, they're. Uh, we actually they've worked with Kirby Morgan for many, many years, so they're kind of like brothers almost. Uh, you know, but if it's a direct competition, like when Gorski came out with his helmet, it was direct competition. But Gorski didn't copy anything Kirby Morgan did. So the first thing we did was run out and buy a Gorski helmet and test it. You know, make sure. Uh, but Les is a really good friend of mine. And uh, and it's really funny. I tell people all the time, you know, if Kirby Morgan doesn't work for you, you get a Gorski. But I still think Kirby Morgan's better than a Gorski. But, I, you know, that's just a little in-house thing. Um, but, no, we get, to, we get to look at a lot of things. But then we also turn away a lot of equipment. If, okay. if we're working on something that um, somebody comes and says, hey, we've got this widget we want you to test. And I take one look at it. Maybe something we've done or we're still working on, we'll go, no, 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 we got to, got to stay away from that. Don't want to see it. Especially if they seen, want a non-disclosure, you know. Have you seen like knockoff helmets? Oh yeah. Well, not indeed. We've had the Chinese have copied the band mask, virtually identical. Um, they've copied the 37, I think it's 37. Well, I know they copied the 17 B exactly, but the latest one that I saw was the band mask and it had the quad valve on it. And it actually has a few parts from Kirby Morgan. Evidently, they went out and bought and put on there. But the rest of it, they make. They make their own regulator, says Kirby Morgan. They even take the certification sheets um, with Kirby Morgan employees' signatures and copy them. Actually, I should say counterfeit them. They actually have people signing other people's names to pass it off as Kirby Morgan equipment. So, but... Our industry here, at least in the U.S., they're not most most of the divers are pretty savvy, and of course the people are pretty savvy. And they they generally know when they see something like that, and they're not going to run out and spend the kind of money for something that sounds too good to be true without really checking it out. 
Yeah, because yeah. I know some years back there was a picture floating around of the uh, Chinese super right. So super. that was a real knockoff. It, was it wasn't just somebody photos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and I've, I've I've tested them all. You know, every time Kirby Morgan gets something like that, which isn't very often, they'll send it and we'll test it. And uh, but yeah, it's uh, in the commercial industry, it's it's probably more so in, in the third world countries if they don't know. That would be the bigger danger. When when you're coming up with like all the text sheets and all that stuff, uh, you work hand in hand, obviously, with the other office that's out west. Um, as you also take input from divers on the ground, like we can, you know, say if there's something, some issue, you know, going wrong with the hat. What's the procedure there for um, kind of looking into it? Like if I were to email you and say, "Hey, this tab, you know, broke off" or something like that. Well, we like, always- is there a way to we always tell people send pictures, you know, send it, send us a picture or send us the part, but very rarely do we ever have anything that's kind of what you call catastrophic. If you look at the design of the helmets, they're designed pretty much so that not any one thing, if it fails, will kill the diver. I mean, the worst thing probably is the helmet coming off. And the reality is it should never, ever come off. I mean, the worst case is the old 17B. And uh, in the very early days when it first came out, it just had a bell that closed. Well, if you bumped it, it could open. So the very first thing Kirby Morgan did was put a safety pin in it. Well, then first thing people do is get rid of the safety pin. So that didn't do any good. So they had to redesign it. Now you had to pull it. So, um, but even that, somehow people would figure out a way to snag it just right. So the safety pin went back in it. Well, they still wouldn't want to use the safety pin. So then we said, okay, well, we'll put a chin strap in it. So come up with a chin strap, made that mandatory for all helmets, just in case. And uh, here again, people won't put the chin strap in. The helmets are designed so, so you don't have any catastrophic failures. Even if you broke off your EGS knob, well, the worst thing is you don't have your EGS. But you don't plan on two failures at once. Or if... Um, the dial of breath, uh, you know, you back out all the way on the dial of breath. The helmet just free floats. You you dial all the way in. You can't shut it off. If if you sh- if you're able to shut it off, that means the helmet's not adjusted properly from the inside. So there's all these little things we have to look at, and the failure mode affects cause and analysis is something we run all the time on everything. So we look at all that. It's real important. So. As far as like the future of, of diving helmets is concerned, uh, Kirby Morgan's had a pretty darn consistent, you know, model. So that helmet style has really never changed a whole lot, but you do see a lot, a lot more different uh, helmet manufacturers kind of doing little, little different things with their, with their hats. Um, of course, they're going to say they're making it better, but I, I mean, in your opinion, what, what's the next step here for diving hats? Well, I don't see um, probably bigger face ports because, you know, you, we, you look at our face port, it doesn't meet the European standards for visibility. But then again, the guys that wrote the standard don't realize at half time you can't see in the water anyway. So it really doesn't matter. And when you got your welding visor on, you just blew all that. Um, so that, that to me, that's one of the least important things. But yeah, you'll probably see a little bit bigger visor. Bev Morgan always wanted to keep, he, he wanted the diver to have what they needed. He kept the face port relatively small mainly because like underwater explosions and things like that minimizes the amount of impact as far as 
possibly, you know, destroying the helmet, killing the diver. So he tried to keep things to a certain size. But even he, you know, decided later on it probably would be better to go to a larger faceboard. It's just a slow evolution. You, you, all of a sudden, you make a bigger faceboard and try to shove it out there into the industry and tell everybody they got to have it. They get mad. Uh, so I don't think this design will change a whole lot anytime soon. But that's probably the next direction you'll see. You have a bigger faceboard. You got bigger. You got more volume. The balance of the helmet is real important, and that's. One of the reasons why people dive Kirby Morgan because the helmet feels really good. The balance is perfect compared to a lot of other helmets. And uh, these stainless steel steel hats, they're they're uh, that's pretty much the future, right? That's what we said before. That's uh, a lot of these hats are going to go go stainless steel. Well, when Kirby Morgan designed this, they they wanted the helmet to look. They wanted the diver to be comfortable, so he he would have something like what he was used to, the thirty seven, which thirty seven and twenty sevens really took off. So Pete Ryan is the one that designed, well, Pete and Bev and probably Trent Schultz, the three of them out there in California, they, they decided, well, it was actually Gorski was probably the, the guy that prompted it. Gorski came out with his stainless helmet and it was a, a big hit with everybody, stainless steel. So Bev says, boy, we got to make a stainless helmet. He'd always wanted to make a steel helmet, but the cost with, uh, to actually mold a helmet and steel, you know, like Ben Miller had done the, the, the you know, he did his helmet years ago and uh, he, he got it, got him cast down in Mexico, real rough castings. But nowadays with modern CNC and with new computerized, being able to do the stainless mold uh, was a lot easier than what it would have been 25, 30 years ago. So when Gorski came out with his, Bev decided that lit a fire under him. And he decided we got to have a stainless helmet. So Pete Ryan, Trent Schultz, and, and Bev together thought, well, we need to make it look like the 37 so everybody would be real comfortable. Everything laid out the same way. So that's basically what they did. And in essence, they basically suspended the helmet in midair and then used the computer and varied the thickness of the shell in different places to get the same weight because geometrically it's virtually identical to a 37. But the balance, in order, you know, you look, you got weights on a 37. Well, those weights are there for a reason, because the fiberglass weighs so little. Well, now you're able to actually spread the weight out using stainless. And so they came out pretty good. Stainless helmets balance really well. So what's your opinion on some more uh, more tech in the water? Like uh, we saw people playing around with like heads-up displays and stuff like that on their, uh, you know, faceplate and, and things like that. I, I mean, are we going to have incorporated dive computers oh, yeah. and, and stuff that you might see in there's the There's some really cool stuff being done right now. Um, in fact, that's what I'm going to Houston on Tuesday or Monday. Uh, there's a company that's building a, um, it's basically a camera goes on the front of the helmet and it's got another module that goes on the back of the helmet and it sends, uh, it, it's wired to the surface to a computer and basically uh, they have a sonar system that gets dropped down in the water near the diver. And it's doing a 360-degree sonar picture of what's down there. And it sends that image topside to a computer. Computer turns around, sends it back to the diver. The computer has a, a module on the diver's head. No matter what way the diver turns, the computer knows what, what direction he's heading and what he's looking at. It's also got a camera. 
So it sends him the images of what the 360-degree sonar is seeing. And it paints them a, basically a black and white picture. Um, so the diver could be in completely zero visibility. He could be diving an airplane, an airplane crash site. Might be a part of the fuselage over here, an engine over there, seats over here, cargo over there. It sends him a picture um, exactly as, as it is down there. Um, and uh, But with zero visibility in the water. So, so it's, it's kind of like a mesotech with a heads-up display for the diver. That's yeah, exactly. So not only can you see what's out there, but they can also send them images from topside. They can send them drawings, uh, color-coded drawings, schematics, whatever. Um, so that's pretty cool stuff. They're actually showing the Navy showing that off. It's a Navy project, and they're they're going to be showing that off over at the neutral buoyancy chamber that, over at NASA on, on next week. So. And we're going over with the diamond because they're interested in looking at the diamond and diving it. So we're bringing a diamond over. Can Can you tell us a little bit more about the diamond regulator? I know we've been hearing about it for quite a bit. You know, what prompted you guys to 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 come out with it? Dirty water diving, primarily. I, I hate hate saying contaminated water diving, but that's what it is. Dirty water diving. We're we're a diver. Maybe has to get into raw sewage or get gets into fuel oil. So you put a diver in a, in a dry suit um, and you mate the dry suit to the neck ring. And then you put gloves on the dry suit that actually lock around, seal around the wrists. So where the diver's not, he's absolutely getting no water on him from the out external environment. So he's completely encapsulated. And, uh, and, so there's not even the first drop of water. Now you put the helmet on, the helmet's sealed to the neck ring. And now the biggest problem after that, of course, is exhaust. You have to exhale. You got to blow the bubbles out into the water. And when you do, basically the exhaust valve is out there in the water open. The valve gets wet. It slams shut. It puts just a tiny bit of mist back in to the exhaust, which is now a vapor. And the diver can smell it, whatever's in there. So what we want to do is completely minimize that. Well, the the most well-known company that has that's Dirty Harry Divex system out of the UK. And this is virtually identical, except we've taken a little bit further. The way it seals on the helmet, uh, you can pull the regulator off really, really fast and service it, clean it, put it right back on again. That was the main thing that Kirby Morgan did was... They basically took that Dirty Harry system and refined it into something that can be serviced really, really fast every day. If you need to take it off every day and clean everything, put it back together and then be able to dive it. Okay, so we we uh, we talked a little bit. Of, okay, go go ahead, Kenny. How many Sorry. times have you been asked about the abyss and breathing? Oh, yeah. Actually, that's pretty <laughs> cool. The abyss... I have um, to. The abyss was Bob Kirby made the helmets for the movie The Abyss. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, no and uh, yeah, Bob made those helmets. Did a great job on that. That I thought that was a good movie. Um, the that uh, was the abyss was before my time, but but it wasn't that far before. Um, I, what I'm saying when I came on with Kirby Morgan, but I was with Kirby Morgan when they did the movie um, with Dustin Hoffman there. Uh, 
Sphere. Sphere was the name of the movie. There That's you it. go. There it is. And to me, that that movie, the movie wasn't as good as The Abyss. The Abyss, just when they're in that submarine going around and the bodies float up, I mean, that's really what a nuclear submarine looks like. The the, the amount of detail in The Abyss was was really, really good. Uh, I thought it was really good. But uh, Sphere, not nearly as well. But Kirby Morgan did the helmets for the Sphere. And so I went out there and I met a couple times when the set directors were there. Trent Schultz is actually the one that made that helmet, did a great job. But I dove that helmet quite a bit in the pool hmm. during the early design. And uh, Kirby Morgan's got a couple of them out there. Uh, and that's if you look at it carefully, you'll see that's where the quad exhaust came from. In the cover. Oh. Yeah. No so. crap. Awesome. No kidding. Yeah, next time you see that movie, you can check it out. Be cool to roll up to the job site and pull that hat out your bag. <laughs> they did that movie. They made that movie in uh, Mare Island Naval Shipyard in in one of the big. Uh, Do you see anywhere in the future where diving helmets will be used by recreational scuba divers? But yeah, just kind of wondering because I was watching a, I was watching some videos and looking at some articles on you know some kid that had designed this rebreather helmet. I forget the name of it, but it was a recreational, you know, looked like a motorcycle helmet that had rebreather crap inside. But I saw that. I saw it at DEMA. I saw it at DEMA two years ago, and it's all smoke and mirrors. That's what it's all like. Yeah. I mean, is it real? Could somebody really go underwater? Yeah, you can do that. But what they were, what the way they were bringing it across, it was pretty much smoke and mirrors. It definitely kill you in a heartbeat. Sounded like Um, snake oil to me when I first heard about it. Yeah. But it, I, I got to admit, it looked cool. Mm. And, and it, exactly, the guy had his hat and his cane, and he was dancing up a storm at DEMA explaining it all. And they put people in the water with it. And they had little video showing people diving it. But uh, when you listen to what they said that you could do with it and what you saw them doing, you realize it. it and, I, and, and I haven't seen it since. That was a year, year and a half ago. So I doubt seriously, you know, it's going to be way down the road. Because it definitely wouldn't let you breathe um, any more than than very, very light work. And then not even light work, resting. Go ahead, Kenny. Yeah, one question. I mean, I know you have your... What's what's something that we as divers... What's a one simple thing, maybe it's on your daily checklist, that we can do to our hats every day after a dive, besides rinsing, anything besides just rinsing with fresh water that can really keep a hat going a little bit The best thing you do is pull the cover off. Pull the diaphragm cover off. Rinse it. If you can rinse it with pressure up on it, that best thing. Spray it all off real good. Hit it with some soapy water. Um, the nooks and crannies. You know, if you, as long as you use a little bit of soapy water to dissolve that salt, pull the diaphragm out, pull, pull the cover and diaphragm. W- what I tell everybody is get a little net bag. You wash your diaphragm and your cover, throw it in a net bag, tie it off to the side of the helmet. Leave it off till you're ready to go the next day. Then put it back on. That way everything's had a chance to dry. And if you're diving a helmet that's a balanced helmet, um, don't get any water in the balance mechanism, especially if you're in a cold climate, because you know you you get all kinds of mung that grows in there. That that's probably the biggest disadvantage to balanced regulators is the fact that you can get you get moisture in there. And if you're diving in a really cold climate, you start off with a frozen regulator. You got to stop and you got to dry everything out. So um, just make sure. Best thing to do is keep it pressurized. You can always use your EGS to pressurize it. Do all your washing, um, and then once you're done, you got the cover off. 
you can go ahead and you can vent it off, disconnect everything. And that that's probably the number one thing, keeping it clean. Right, and then the other thing is pull that face port off every every month or two. Or if you're out doing a, a real a lot of cutting and burning, pull that face port off once a month. Rinse it off real good, let it dry, check the threads, make sure you don't need to run a tap in there, and then uh, put it all back together. If you do that, you you just won't have problems with it. Now you told me that uh, now those are pretty specific torque though. You guys recommended to me that uh, yeah, exactly. uh, uh, torque screwdriver. Exactly, torque screwdriver. Now I, I tell everybody I probably shouldn't say this, but I tell everybody you should never ever, if something happened and you had to put it back together, you didn't have a torque wrench, you use three fingers on a screwdriver. In other words, you hold a screwdriver like this, three fingers. You can't over tighten it. Okay. That would be like in an emergency, but that's something everybody should have as a torque screwdriver because we're only tightening those. Uh, you're, you're testing them to, uh, I think it's 14, yeah, 12, 14. And uh, you're only tightening them to, to 12. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's not much, but it's probably more than you can do with three fingers. Try it. You'll see what I'm talking about. I can test it. <laughs> I have one of those torque screwdrivers. Yeah. yeah they're, they're awesome. Yep. That's, that's, that's on a fiberglass helmet. Stainless steel helmet, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. But use three fingers. That's all you got to use. You don't need to over-tighten it. You don't need to tighten that face port down tight because you got that's what that soft O-ring is for. Pushes mm -hmm. out. So three fingers, that's all you got to do. And on the stainless, you could actually go a little more than three fingers, but that's it. That's all you got to do. Um, there's nothing on that helmet that needs to be super tight. But we have torques for everything, it's mainly to make sure that gets tightened. But if you noticed over the years, we've backed off on many of the torques because they were just way too high. It didn't need to be that high. And people end up um, torquing it down really tight, and then they don't take it apart for a year and a half. And then when it comes time to take it apart, they have trouble getting it apart. Cool. Thank you. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. You know, uh, great talking with you. This, uh, again... A lot of good per pertinent information for for us divers out there in the field and and uh it's nice to know that you're still doing this after all these years you're you're passionate about what you're doing attention to detail and uh again you know it's for kirby morgan but you know we're the customers and you're right you want to keep us alive so you know it's a right. great way to look at it so thanks a lot mike all right well i appreciate you having me see you all later <laughs>